0: A Harris Interactive survey sponsored by carmd.com found that 10% of 2,041 U.S. adults polled were driving a car whose check engine light was still on. An alarming 50% of those whose cars were showing signs of an impending breakdown indicated the light had been on for over three months. Another 10% said it had been on between one to two months. Kristen Brokoff, marketing manager for CarMD.com, says it's a particularly sobering statistic because the U.S. government put the onboard diagnostic system in place to alert drivers when their vehicle was admitting too many admissions or had a problem. This light can significantly uh, can signify something potentially costly and possibly dangerous to the passengers or others on the road. It's important that drivers treat it seriously, she said. The survey found that drivers had a whole litany of excuses for ignoring the light. Some turned a blind eye towards the indicator because the severity of the problem seemed questionable due to the car running fine. Others pointed to a lack of sufficient funds, so others simply noted that they just didn't have time to worry about diagnostics and repairs. Now, I have to admit... I'm in this category in here, right? I'm in the category, well, it seems like the car is running just fine. But the warning light is there for a purpose, right? To help us know that something's not right. To help us know that ahead of time that there's a possible breakdown getting ready to happen. To help us know that it's time to stop and evaluate the situation, A warning is actually an opportunity to take immediate action that is necessary. Warning lights on cars are easy to ignore. Warning lights in life are easy to ignore. When a warning light goes off in our lives, how do we react? Do you think, well, life just keeps going on okay. It it can't be that bad. I mean, the problem doesn't seem like it's of eminent concern. I can just ignore it. And on and on we go, ignoring the warning signs of life. The Jewish people had become really good at ignoring God's warnings. Over and over again, God had given them warning after warning ahead of time to let them know that they needed to take seriously the reality of their lives. They had opportunity after opportunity to come to God by faith. They had all those great God-given opportunities listed in Romans chapter 9. They had the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises, the patriarchs, and ultimately Jesus himself coming to them, all warning lights, all opportunities. But one wrote, instead of permitting their religious privileges to lead them to Christ, they used these privileges as a substitute for Christ. And what did they choose instead? Chance after chance, as we saw in Romans 10, 1 through 4, they chose themselves. They chose ignorance when the true knowledge of God's righteousness was right there for them to know. They chose to seek and establish their own self-righteous system of a works-based righteousness, and they willfully chose to not submit to God's righteousness. Theirs was an ignorance that stemmed from willful, stubborn, resistance to the truth. They would not submit to God. They were proud of their own good works and religious self-righteousness. They would not admit their sins and trust the Savior. They looked to the Old Testament law, to their outward obedience to this law, as earning their salvation, as earning their right standing with God. Israel pursued God, as Romans 9.32 says, not by faith, but as if it were based on works. One commentator wrote, everything about the Jewish religion pointed to the coming of the Messiah, the sacrifices and priesthood, temple services and religious festivals and covenants. Their law told them they were sinners in need of a savior. But instead of letting that law bring them to Christ, they worshiped their law. And rejected their Savior. That's precisely where Paul ends at the beginning here of the paragraph of chapter 4 and verse 4. Where it says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Christ has put an end to the vain pursuit of self-righteousness. And thinking that one's standing with God can be earned as if it was based on works. Jesus himself is the end of a self-righteous, earn it salvation. For he himself is the beginning, the source, the basis of a faith-based salvation that is through his righteousness. Remember the outline of Romans 10. We've seen first their choice, Romans 10, 1 through 4. Now today, we're going to see their opportunity in Romans 10, 5 through 17. And then lastly, there is their response at the end of Romans. So please turn to your Bibles with me to Romans 10. Romans chapter 10, and follow along as I read verses 1 to 17. God's word says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law of righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commands shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says... Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that Christ raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with a heart one believes and is justified, and with a mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him and whom they have not believed? And How are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless someone is sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Father, now we have read your word, a word that you have given to us through your Holy Spirit, inspired, and errant, a word that was written to change us and to challenge us, to, to capture our thoughts and our attitudes. And Lord, we pray now that we would hear it and respond. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, before we jump into verse 5 and following, it's important to note something of the structure of the rest of chapter 10. From verse 5 and following, there are 17 verses remaining in chapter 10. And from verse 5 and following, 12 of those verses are quotes from the Old Testament. 12 of the 17 verses are quotes from the Old Testament. Do you think Paul's trying to make a point here? especially to his Jewish readers, he's stressing here that there is nothing new in what he is teaching. This is what God has been teaching from the very beginning. Their ignorance and their insubordination to God was their choice, but not because they didn't know better. One commentator wrote, is it any wonder that Paul quotes more passages from the Old Testament in Romans 10 than in any other passage of similar length in his writings, he wants the church at Rome to know that the scriptures have been clear for generation after generation about God's plan and how to live in step with it. The fact that Israel was out of step was due to their failure to believe, not God's failure to make it clear. I know how sad. I know how true that is, not just for them in their day, but for us too in our day. It's not that God has not made it clear for us, to our community, to our nation. It's that we have failed to believe. That last sentence is very important. The fact that Israel's out of step was due to their failure to believe, not God's failure to make it clear. God had not failed them. They had failed their Messiah. They refused to believe even with all the warning lights, even with all the opportunities. Now, in this passage, Paul delineates three areas of opportunities that should have led them to faith. One is from what the Old Testament teaches. We'll see that in verses 5 through 8. Two is from the nearness of faith, that it's in their mouth, it's in their heart, verses 9 through 13. And three is from those who were sent to proclaim the good news, the gospel, to them in 14 through 17. Well, first, let's look at their opportunities from Old Testament in verses 5 through 8. Paul quotes Moses in two different places to make two different points. The first in verse 5 is a quote from Leviticus 18.5. Verse says, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. His first point is brief, but it's clear. And it's a direct rebuttal to the thought that one could actually earn one's righteous standing before God. To have a righteousness that is based on the law, you have to keep the law. That's what Moses is saying. That's what Paul is reiterating here. The one who does the commandments shall live by them. To have a law-based, works-based righteousness, you have to earn it completely. So that begs the question, can you earn it? Can you earn a works-based righteousness? Can you merit your own standing with God? And shockingly, the answer is yes. All you have to do is perfectly keep every law. All you have to do is perfectly love God in every situation. All you have to do is perfectly love your neighbor in every situation. All you have to do is have the perfect right attitude in every moment of your life. Yes, to earn it yourself. All you have to do is be perfect in action and heart and in attitude. If you want a law-based righteousness, All you have to do is be perfect. The one who does the commandments shall live by them. Which, of course, is impossible. So what did they do instead of coming to the right conclusion? What did the nation of Israel, the Jewish religious leaders, what did they do instead of coming to the easy conclusion of the impossibility of keeping the law? What did they do? They watered down the requirements of the law. They quantified them to make them easier to follow. They devoided the law from its true righteousness and thus they remade it to say what they wanted to say, to make the law their own version of it so that they could keep it. There's this great encounter with Jesus in the New Testament that greatly illustrates this. It's in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 22, where. Jesus encounters the rich young man. It goes like this. And behold, a man came to him saying, Teacher, what good deed must I do to inherit eternal life? Right? There's the question, the question of questions. Tell me how to earn my own salvation. How can I earn it? That's the foremost questions on the minds of the Jews. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? There's only one who is good. If you would enter life, keep the commandments. It's exactly what Moses said in Leviticus. It's exactly what Paul is quoting here in verse 5. This is a great response from Jesus. He's telling this young man, If you want to earn your own salvation, all you have to do is keep the commandments. Be perfect. The young man says, Which ones? Now don't you start to see the heart, right? What's what's the quid pro quos here, right? You know, what's what do I really gotta do here? He doesn't really want to totally obey the law. Just the necessary spiritual hoops, right? Just the bare minimum. Just tell me the lowest possible hurdle that I can jump over. That's what I want to do. This attitude accurately reflected the prevailing attitude of the Jewish religious leaders of that day, Jesus said to him, answered him, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and mother, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus starts listing off some of the biggies, right? Some of the big commandments of the over 600 commandments that are in the Old Testament. The young man says to him, well, all these I've kept, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, it says in Luke, that Jesus looked at him and loved him. Jesus looked at him and said to this man, if you would be perfect, if you want to earn your own way, go, sell what possessions you have and give to the poor and you will have treasures in heaven and come, follow me. When the young man heard this, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. This young man, the eyes of Jesus looking at him in love, this young man turned his back and walked away from Jesus sorrowful because he wanted to earn his own salvation, but not at that cost, not that way. See, Jesus exposed this young man's unwillingness to follow all the commands. If you want to go down the road to be perfect in your own righteousness, then you have to do all, which included do not covet, which obviously this young man was having a serious struggle with. He wanted a list-based, work-based, performance-based relationship with God on his own shortened list. One in which he could earn his own righteous stand me for God and continue to hoard all the money and continue to be selfish. And one that didn't actually evaluate his heart or his attitudes. He refused to acknowledge his sin. He refused to repent. He refused to relinquish his desire for wealth. And he rejected the Savior of the world that was standing right before him and turned from him and did not follow Christ. Jesus lovingly confronts the man, exposing his unwillingness to actually keep the commandments and taught him the impossibility of keeping the whole law and yet he would not submit to the truth. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point, has become guilty of it all. This is precisely the main purpose of the law, to expose sin, to show the other impossibility of a law-based righteousness. The law was given to drive them to grace. The law was given to drive them to faith. The law was given to expose their need for a savior. The law was given to lead a person to Christ. Verse 5 is a short verse, but the truth Paul is teaching here is very important. You can't earn your own righteousness. It's impossible to keep the whole law. What is he saying? Moses taught that. Next, in verses 6 through 8, we see that Moses taught instead that righteousness is based on faith. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy 30. This chapter is all about repentance and forgiveness. This chapter is all about how to return to God after you've abandoned him. And what's the answer? Verse 2 of Deuteronomy 30 says, And return to the Lord your God, you and your children, and obey his voice and all that I command you today with your whole heart and your whole soul. Verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise what? Your heart and the heart of your offspring. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, that you may live. Verse 10, when you turn to the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. The Old Testament law was never about outward, ritual, work-based righteousness. It was always about penetrating to the heart. We could go on and on and on with verse after verse throughout the Old Testament that teaches this truth. The law was never given to save. It was always, has always been, will always be a matter of the heart, a matter of faith. Salvation has always been by grace, through faith. But at first glance, as you read through verses 6 and 8, it doesn't jump right off the page how easy they are to understand. But when you put them back in their context of Deuteronomy chapter 30, it helps a lot. See, since the people in Moses' day had the clear message from God, they didn't need to go to great endeavors to have it. They didn't need to bring it down. They didn't need to bring it up because that was impossible. No, it was already near them. Deuteronomy 30, 14 says, But the word is very near you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart so that you can do it. See, it wasn't by their work It was something that was to be received by them. So likewise, Paul is saying the same thing here. That that they have the clear message. Here the readers of Romans. We have the clear message from God, the word of faith, the gospel. You don't need to go through great endeavors to have it. You don't need to, figuratively speaking, bring Christ down from heaven. You don't need to bring Christ up from the abyss. No, that's impossible. It's not about works. It's not about your deeds. It must simply be received as given. The opportunity for salvation for the Jews has always been right there, knowable and accessible in their mouth, in their heart. See, Paul's main point in verse 6 through 8 is to paint the picture using figurative language that salvation is so close. Salvation is so nearby, it's as if it's already in you. There is nothing one needs to do to go get it. There is nothing one needs to do to go get it. All one has to do is respond. And that leads to the second opportunity that they had from the nearness of faith in their mouth and in their heart in verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 and 10 show us how one is supposed to respond to God and his grace. Paul answers the greatest question of all. What does God want me to do? What is God's plan of salvation for me? The answer, faith. That's what God wants. Verses 9 and 10 says, Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, with the mouth one confesses and is saved, that is faith. Now at first glance, it might seem like these are two things. But confessing and believing are just two sides of that same coin of faith. What the heart believes, the mouth confesses. What is God's salvation plan for you? Faith. Trust in him. What does that faith look like? When one has put their faith in God, they confess with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. They believe in their heart that God raised him from the dead. Then you will be saved. For as verse 10 says, with the heart we believe and are justified. With the mouth we confess and are saved. Did you notice the switch of order there? From verse 9 and 10, from confession and belief to belief and confession. Paul's obviously not making this a two-step process of salvation. No, our response to the prompting of the Holy Spirit in our lives is faith. A faith that is grounded in the person and work of Christ. It is his death for our sins. It is his resurrection from the dead, proving that it's all true. The truth of Christ's resurrection is the supreme validation of all that Christ accomplished. His resurrection proved his eternal victory over sin and death and Satan. Apart from Christ's resurrection, there would be no salvation. One wrote If a person denies the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then he cannot possibly be a Christian. Christians can make mistakes in theology. And not everyone has perfect orthodoxy. Indeed, if we had to wait until we were perfectly orthodox before we were saved, none of us would be saved. But the denial of the resurrection of Christ is an intolerable error. You can't be saved if you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. Because our faith is is grounded in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. His life, his substitutionary death, his powerful, vindicating resurrection. And then in faith, based on those truths, we confess Jesus is Lord. We confess Jesus is our Lord. To confess Jesus as Lord is to acknowledge his deity and his authority. To confess Jesus as your Lord is to say, Jesus, you are my God and you have authority over me. Salvation is not simply believing in the factual events of Christ's death and resurrection. As James 2.19 says, the demons believe the facts. Mere mental assent to the facts of salvation is not salvation. No, on the coin of faith, one side is believing the truth, the facts, the reality of all Christ did. The other side, then, is the humble submission to the truth, confessing Jesus is your Lord. Faith in Christ is not just believing that Jesus is the forgiver of your sins, but confessing him as the leader of your life. Jesus as our Savior and Jesus as our Lord are a package deal. Many have been falsely told that all you need to do is assent to the facts of Christ's death and resurrection. Pray a simple prayer and ask God to forgive you. Say the sinner's prayer and you're in. It's often presented as this perfunctory couple of sentences that if you just mouth these words, you're in. Now many millions upon millions of Christians have come to genuine faith through the sinner's prayer. Dear Lord Jesus, I know I'm a sinner, and I ask for your forgiveness. I believe you died for my sins and rose from the dead. I turn from my sin and invite you to come into my heart and into my life. I want to trust and follow you as my Lord and Savior. A beautiful, powerful, important prayer. And I hope that every person hearing me today has prayed that prayer and meant it. But the challenge I'm trying to help us see is that sometimes we falsely just treat salvation as saying a prayer, as a one time transaction. True salvation is not just simply a transaction, it is a transformation. As 2 Corinthians 5, 17 puts it, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. This is very important. It's not just simply saying the words of a prayer that saves, but it's the Holy Spirit transforming our hearts and in humility, putting us into faith, into God, so that we proclaim Jesus as our Lord of our lives. One could illustrate it like this. If you had a glass of water, if I had a big glass of water sitting right here, and I dropped a pebble into it, a transaction would have occurred, but there would have been no transformation. But instead, in that big glass of water, instead of dropping a pebble, I just dropped a drop of food coloring into that water. A transaction would have occurred that would have produced a total transformation. The old would be gone, the new has come. It's this type of transformational salvation with Jesus as our Lord and Savior that is being offered to you today, to each one of us. Salvation is believing who Jesus is, what he did for us in his death and resurrection, which then compels us to humbly and thankfully confess him as our Lord and Savior. So here's the bottom line. If you prayed that prayer, but have never truly submitted your life to Jesus as your Lord, as the leader of your life, never really transforming, only this prayer of transaction, then don't just look back at your past I beg of you right now, look at your now. Where are you now? Don't rely on a prayer you prayed years ago like somehow you're in just because you said the right magic formula. No. Evaluate today. Right now, do you believe in your heart that Jesus died for your sins taking your penalty, and rose again, securing your salvation? Is your heart humble? And does your mouth overflow, confessing, Jesus is my Lord. He's the leader and forgiver of your life. Evaluate. As Romans 8.16 says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. Is the Spirit bearing witness within you right now that you are a child of God? And I know that for so many of us here this morning, the Spirit is bearing witness within us. And there's a yes, yes. There's a wonderful, humble, thankful yes. There's a tearful and joyful yes. I believe, yes. I confess, Jesus died on the cross for me. Jesus rose again. Yes, I confess him as my Lord and Savior. But perhaps today you're realizing that though you may have said the words, you've never truly trusted. You've never truly from your heart believed. You never truly confessed him as the Lord, the leader of your life. Verse 13 tells us everyone who calls on the name of the Lord Will be saved. That means you. You can call on Him right now. In your own words, from your own heart, you can pray because today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of transformation. Today is the day when the old goes away and the new has come. Now, if you need any guidance, any help or encouragement along, you can always see me after the service. You can see Pastor Rob. Perhaps you can talk with your parents, maybe a Christian friend or co-worker. Reach out today. Well, because as you see, this passage continues. We, all of us, need to share the message of faith. As verse 17 says, faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. This third opportunity for them was from those who were sent to proclaim to them the good news. Verses 14 through 17. How then shall we call on him who have we not believed? How are then we to believe in him and who we have not heard? And how are we to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent, as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news? But they've not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, what has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Very good, sound, sequential logic here, right? How are people going to call on Christ if they have not believed on Christ? How are people going to believe on Christ if they've never heard about Jesus? How are people going to hear about Jesus if no one tells them about Jesus? How are people going to tell people about Jesus if they are not sent? Sound, sequential logic. But I fear that sometimes the present use of our words can sometimes cloud the biblical meaning of the words. And and in this passage, you could kind of start to think, oh, that is great sequential logic. That's great for the preacher, right? How are they supposed to hear unless someone's preaching? I'm not a preacher, right? This is talking about the professionals. See... See, Paul here just kind of took an aside, and he's no longer writing to the whole church. He's only writing to the professionals, right? To the preachers, to the missionaries. He's not talking to all of us, right? Beloved, I would like to welcome you all to the pastorate. For you, all of us, are the preachers in this passage. See, preach doesn't mean that... in the Bible only, what pastors do here on a Sunday morning by a pulpit. Preach simply means to herald, to proclaim, to announce, to declare. In its simplest idea, it simply means to talk. How are they going to hear about Jesus if someone doesn't talk to them about Jesus? There are people in this world that are only going to hear the name Jesus if it comes from your mouth. God has placed you in their life so that you could talk to them about Jesus. There's a Christian comedian, Ken Davis, tells us, following story about waiting for a sign from God. A Christian gets on an empty city bus, walks to the rear and sits down. Lord, he prays, if you want me to speak to someone about you, please give me a sign. At the next stop, another passenger boards the bus, goes all the way to the back, sits down right next to the Christian, and the passenger asks, Do you know anything about Jesus? The Christian excuses himself for a moment and slowly bows his head in prayer once again, Lord, if you really want me, to speak to this stranger, I need just one more sign. Please turn the bus driver into an armadillo. Now it's strange and silly, but don't we do that? Isn't there some truth to that? Well, folks, today, here's your sign. Here's the sign from God's word for you. God's word speaking to you. Mark chapter 16, verse 15. Go, go and to all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. You needed a sign. There is your sign. There are people in this world who are only going to hear Jesus through you. Christian, risk yourself for God. Pray for God to open a door, to open their heart, to open our mouths to talk about our Savior Jesus. How are they going to hear unless someone, you and me, tells them, Christian, let your heart be broken for a world in need. Well, today, if through this sermon, you've come to realize that you've never truly surrendered your life to Christ, you've never exchanged your sin for his salvation, you never looked into the eyes of Jesus and said, yes, you are my God, my Lord. Today is your day of salvation. Pray to Jesus. Let's pray together. Father, now we come to you so thankful. So thankful for your word. It's So wonderful and teaches us such amazing truth. And Holy Spirit, we come to you so thankful that you work within us, You know, confirming within us that we're children of God and then convicting those who are not to challenge them to, to, to come to grips with the reality of eternal life and then to choose Christ. If you're here today, maybe here in the, in the church building, maybe you're at home over the internet, And you've never actually put your whole heart and trust and faith in Jesus Christ. Pray to him now. The simple prayers. First, A. Admit. Admit your sin. Admit you fall short. Admit it's impossible to earn your own salvation. B is believe. Believe in Jesus. Believe that That what he did is true. That he actually died on the cross. That he actually rose again. Believe in Jesus. And then see, confess. Confess Jesus. Confess him as your Lord. Confess him as your Savior. Relinquish your life to him. The leadership to him. And you will. Be saved, the ABCs. Pray it in your own words, in your own way. And then let me know if you need help or you need encouragement, let me know. And Lord, for us as Christians here this morning, break our hearts for this world around us. Help us to risk ourselves for you, to speak up and to speak out the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen.